This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. The purpose of life is to know God. That's a nice, clean, simple statement from St. Thomas Aquinas. The purpose of life is to know God. In that one statement, he sums up what our life is all about. It's about knowing God. Now we know that there are two ways to know God according to the teaching of St. Thomas. One way is by nature, another way is by grace. By nature, a human being can know God through philosophical reasoning and can rise up to knowing the existence of God from his effects in the world around us in the natural order. That kind of knowledge is open to all human beings in principle and by observing the world, we can come to know that God exists and some of his attributes. But when we know the existence of God and his attributes that way, God remains rather distant, far off in a manner of speaking. He's the conclusion of one of our inferences or demonstrations. There's another way of knowing God, which is by grace. When we are plunged into the life of Christ, filled with the Spirit, and we receive the Spirit's gifts and the virtues, we are able to know God by faith and by the gifts of the Spirit. And this is another way of knowing God that's not the result of an inference or philosophical inquiry. It's an immediate personal knowledge of God that we carry in the depths of our souls. So when St. Thomas Aquinas says that the purpose of our life is to know God, in fact, God created us to know him, not only naturally or by philosophical reasoning, but in the second way as well, by faith. God has revealed himself to us in Christ. He has sent the prophets and the apostles to testify to us. The first truth comes to us and we hear it proclaimed, we believe by faith. This is what God has made us for, to know him in this personal and immediate way, beginning in faith, growing through the Spirit's gifts of knowledge, understanding, wisdom, and other gifts, and to continue knowing him this way more and more and more, all the way to the point that we see him face to face in heaven in the beatific vision. In another place, St. Thomas says, the purpose and delight of our entire life is to know the Trinity in unity. When he makes that statement, St. Thomas is even clearer that the purpose of our life is to know the Holy Trinity. And that can only be known by divine revelation and in the, ultimately through the beatific vision. That's what God made us for, was to know him this way in this personal immediate way by grace. And all of the baptized are called to the fullness of contemplative prayer, that is to know God in this very personal, very familiar kind of way. Now when you hear the statement that all the baptized are called to, to the fullness of contemplative prayer, you might immediately think of cloisters or monasteries, the cloistered life. But that's not what I have in mind. Uh, the cloistered life is an outward form of life where monks or nuns live in a monastic 
form of life with its regular observances and its rhythm of prayer and liturgy and various things that go into that life. That's an outward form of life. I'm not saying that everyone is called to that outward form of life, obviously. I am saying that everyone is called to contemplative prayer. And contemplative prayer is a form of interior life. It's something that takes place in the heart, the life of the heart. And it's a life of knowing and loving God. So when I say that all of the baptized are called to the fullness of contemplative prayer, what I mean is that all the baptized are called to the heights of union with God. They're called to live like the saints did in this deep union of knowledge and love with God in the depths of the heart. It's important to get clear on this that all the baptized are called to the fullness of contemplative prayer because for a long period of time in the church in the last several centuries there was a, a view circulating among some theologians and some preachers that not all of the baptized are called to the fullness of contemplative prayer or to the heights of union with God. These theologians and some preachers declared that only some people are called to the heights of union, while other people, the majority of people, are called simply to an ordinary life to observe the commandments, the Ten Commandments, and that's it. They're not necessarily called, or largely they're not called, to know God in this familiar, personal, intimate kind of way in the depths of the heart. Um, that's just not what um, is given to us. And there was a dispute and a controversy about this question. And the theologians who followed St. Thomas Aquinas were uh, opposed to this position that not everyone is called and really advanced the view vigorously that all of the baptized are called to a contemplative prayer and to the heights of contemplative prayer and to union with God to know him personally and with great familiarity and intimacy in the depths of the heart by grace. The Second Vatican Council went on to affirm this position in the fifth chapter of Lumen Gentium, the universal call to holiness. And when the Second Vatican Council speaks about the universal call to holiness, it should not be interpreted to mean all the baptized are simply called to lead, be morally well-behaved or lead a life in accordance with the commandments. It should be understood to mean that all the baptized are called to contemplative prayer, the heights of contemplative prayer and union with God, and to know Him personally in the depths of their heart in this profound way by grace. So, all the baptized are called to this, that means God is now calling you and me to know him and to love him and to become a contemplative soul. That is, someone who is aware of the presence of God in the depths of his or her heart and lives with God in the depths of the heart and responds to him by knowing and loving him more and more. Let's think about how this works a little bit let's review some of the basic points of the anthropology of St. Thomas Aquinas. 
and then we'll go on to discuss the contemplative life of the Blessed Virgin Mary. What is a human being? Well, to begin with, a human being is composed of body and soul. We are a psychosomatic unit. So, and the soul is what's responsible for the body being alive and being ordered and active in the various organs and parts uh, of the human being. But there's more to us than just our body and our organic activity or biological activity. Every human being has a personal core in the depths of his or her being. And this personal core goes by different names. Sometimes St. Thomas Aquinas calls it the spirit, the human spirit. Sometimes he calls it the heart. And sometimes he calls it mind. These three different terms all signify one and the same mysterious reality, which is the core of the human person. This is where we have our intellect, which is capable of knowing truth, and our will, which is capable of loving what is good. And this personal core is called spirit because it's not the activity, properly speaking, of organs, physical organs in our body. These are powers of the soul that are purely spiritual or immaterial, so it's called spirit. It can also be called the heart because all of our thoughts, words, and deeds, free actions, come from this principle within. The intellect and will together forming one potential whole, Aquinas calls it, that is our heart. It's the deep place within us. He also calls it the mind, and he specifically uses that word, mind, to signify these two powers of intellect and will in their interaction with one another, our will following our intellect. And so there's this place within us that's capable of a knowledge and a love which is more than just sensation. There are eyes of the soul, that's the intellect. There is the deep loves of one's heart, that's the will. And this is the place within us that we can know God in a very personal and familiar way by grace. How so? The image of God, each human being is created in the image of God, and the image of God in us is found precisely in this interior core, in the spirit, the heart, or the mind. And when the image of God is renewed in us by grace, it actually becomes a reflection, a likeness of the triune God himself, a living reflection of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It, the same place deep within us also becomes a temple, a dwelling place where the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit live in us and dwell in us by grace. And one of the interesting things is that God created us to be and to become his temple, not only individually, but communally, together, as a church. So the more that each individual has his or her heart renewed by the grace of God, the more the individual becomes a temple of the, whole, of the Holy Trinity. But likewise, the more people in which this renewal takes place, the more that the whole church on earth becomes the temple of God more and more and more. But in order for this to happen, 
our hearts need to be renewed by grace. That's the great work that God carries out in us thanks to the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus and the grace of the Holy Spirit poured into our hearts. The love of God has been poured forth into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us, St. Paul says. And St. Thomas Aquinas loves to quote that passage. And when the Spirit is poured forth into our hearts, this, when the Spirit of love is given to us, our hearts begin to be renewed. That we, become, we, we acquire or receive the grace of a new heart. In the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 2697, it says that prayer is the life of the new heart. So the Catechism very closely associates the heart, the renewal of the heart by grace, and the life of prayer. This renewal begins in our hearts by grace. Let's try to get a little bit more specific. When God pours His grace into our hearts in our baptism, first thing we receive is the grace of faith, the theological virtue of faith, and that faith establishes us in contact with God revealing Himself. God reveals Himself, and He does so through the testimony of the church. We hear the testimony of the church, and that testimony meets with the grace of faith. Faith moves us to believe the testimony as God's own word, and when we do so, we come into living contact with God nothing and no one less than God himself. That's an amazing thing that we have immediate personal spirit-to-spirit -spirit contact with God. And the spirit of understanding, the gift of understanding is given to us as well and the gift of knowledge. And the spirit of understanding gives us many lights and insights into the meanings of the mystery, the mysteries of faith, the articles of the creed. And the spirit of knowledge gives us a proper estimation of creatures in comparison to God helps us realize how transitory creatures are and how little uh, they uh, are in comparison to God and that they're not worth going astray for or sinning for. The Holy Spirit also pours into our hearts charity, the love of God, and with charity comes also uh, the Spirit's gift of wisdom, and wisdom is this marvelous gift by which we behold God in, in Himself as good, as goodness, as love, and we can behold Him with the eyes of love, gazing upon God with the eyes of love, looking at Him through the very light of love itself. Love itself gazes upon God thanks to the spirit of wisdom. It's not yet the beatific vision, to be sure. It's not an open vision of God face to face. But with the spirit of wisdom comes a profound perception of God, nonetheless, an experiential knowledge of God, taste and see the goodness of the Lord. That's what goes with the Spirit's gift of wisdom. Now, all of these gifts, faith and, and, and the Spirit's gifts of knowledge, understanding and wisdom and charity, all of this is given to us by the grace of God in baptism. How shall we understand contemplation or contemplative prayer? The Catechism of the Catholic Church in paragraph 2715 says this, Contemplation is a gaze of faith fixed on Jesus. So it's a form of gazing, but it's a gaze of faith. This focus on Jesus, it says, 
is a renunciation of self. So there's a kind of self-forgetfulness there. And his gaze purifies our hearts. And the light of the countenance of Jesus illumines the eyes of our heart, that is, our intellect, and teaches us to see everything in light of his truth and his compassion for all men. It goes on to say that contemplation also turns its gaze on the mysteries of the life of Christ, and thus it learns the interior knowledge of the Lord. So you can see a couple of times in that, in that paragraph, it describes contemplation or contemplative prayer as a gaze, a gaze of faith, a gaze upon Jesus, and a gaze upon everything in the world in light of Jesus and the mysteries of the life of Jesus. So contemplation and contemplative prayer really consists of looking, beholding, gazing. And that's the great that's the great grace of contemplative prayer. It's not figuring things out or analyzing them or that's more meditative, that's meditation or theological study and inquiry where we're actively deliberately trying to work things out or figure them out or analyze them. Contemplation is more a simple look, a gaze. Like two people who are in love with each other, they just simply look upon each other and they love to look upon each other and they look upon each other with love and through love and their love grows from that mutual gaze. That's contemplation. And we can be, we're called to be contemplatives like that with God himself. There is a certain problem that we have though, and that is, we could say, the problem of attention. See, our attention, in order to be contemplative and to really enter into contemplative prayer, it means that our, our, our attention needs to be fixed on God or focused on God. And we all know how difficult it is to keep our attention fixed on God. Our loves are divided and scattered in many directions, and we're interested in so many other things except God and drawn to so many other things less than God that our attention is always going sort of here or there or, or it's focused upon ourselves. And so there's a need for us to be recovered, recuperated, more specifically for the eyes of our heart to be recovered so that we can gaze upon God in a way that's stable and steady and fixed and continuous and do so in a spirit of wisdom and love. But that's a long process that we all need to go through and it happens by grace. Slowly, gradually, over the course of time through much prayer and initial forms of, of meditation and initial forms of contemplation, we take steps by, by acts of faith and acts of hope and love and study and contemplate and meditation and, and, and prayer. And slowly we're led down a path into contemplation. In a way, the whole Christian life is ordered towards that. And gradually, slowly, more and more, we become temples of the Holy Trinity and become aware of the indwelling of the Holy Trinity more and more in the depths of our hearts. We're held back by sin. We all have disordered passions, disordered attachments. There's egoism or egocentrism that keeps us thinking about ourselves or focusing upon ourselves or interested in ourselves. All of those are effects of the fall 
And the grace of God comes to us in order to purify us, liberate us from those effects, cleanse us more and more of those things, and open up for us and form in us this habit of gazing upon God and looking at Him with love and with joy and delight. That's what God made us for, is to know Him in that personal, familiar way in the depths of our hearts. But we grow into it slowly and gradually. The Blessed Virgin Mary is our model and our, ex our exemplar in this contemplative prayer. She was a contemplative soul, if ever there was one, the greatest contemplative soul after Jesus Christ himself. And she enjoyed from the first moment of her conception the fullness of grace. So not only did, did Mary live in a state of sanctifying grace, but she had the fullness of it, as the angel says, Hail, full of grace. And with this fullness of grace comes all the same virtues and gifts that we have in our, um, in our, that we receive in our baptism. So the Blessed Virgin Mary had faith. She had the Spirit's gifts of understanding and knowledge. She had charity. She had the Spirit's gift of wisdom. And she had this, this gaze of the eyes of her heart. But there's an important difference between Mary and us. And we can understand this difference if we bring in a theological principle, sometimes called the principle of preeminence. Theologians who study Mary, Mariologists, will often appeal to this principle. And it goes like this. Mary was preeminent among the saints. What does that mean specifically? She received, in the fullest measure, all the supernatural favors and graces accorded to the other saints. So whatever the other saints had, Mary had in a higher way. That means she has the grace of faith, understanding, knowledge, charity, wisdom, and this gazing upon God. She has all those graces, but in a manner beyond, far beyond all of the other saints. So Mary had faith beyond all others. She had the Spirit's gift of understanding beyond all others. She had the Spirit's gift of knowledge beyond all others. She had a charity that was all-surpassing. She had wisdom, the Spirit of wisdom beyond all others, and, and therefore she had this love gaze that was greater and beyond any other. So here's one way to maybe make it a little more concrete. Think of the most mystical saints you can. Think perhaps of St. Catherine of Siena. Whatever there was in St. Catherine of Siena and her personal familiarity with God, the Blessed Virgin Mary had that, but in a manner greater than Catherine of Siena. Or think of all the mystical graces and contemplative uh, lights that St. Teresa of Avila had. The Blessed Virgin Mary was greater than Teresa of Avila or John of the Cross, or Therese of Lisieux, or Saint Elizabeth of the Trinity, or whatever other saint you might name who has lived in deep union with God in prayer, the Blessed Virgin Mary was greater. She was the ultimate contemplative soul after Jesus Christ himself, of course. 
And that's because she had, by faith, this sublime contact with God in the depths of her heart, in the depths of her, her spirit, or in the depths of her mind. Her mind didn't need to be renewed from the effects of sin because she never had those effects to begin with. The, the St. Thomas Aquinas teaches that the fullness of grace overflowed in her so abundantly that whatever effects there were from uh, left over from Adam and Eve, from the, human, from the fall, were totally subdued in her and her soul was preserved from all, from all was, was preserved from sin. I mean, given the, the teaching of the Immaculate Conception, of course. And she also had the Spirit's gift of understanding, so she would have had these penetrating uh, lights and insights into the mysteries of the faith. And the Spirit of knowledge would have been working in her in a sublime way where she could see the greatness of God and, and, and sort of the, the relative smallness of creatures. And her charity was surpassing all others. The, the love of the Blessed Virgin Mary was just immense. I mean, it was beyond any other saint. And with a love like that, that's the love with which she gazed upon God, contemplated Him, contemplated Christ, and knew Him in that very personal, very familiar, deep way. So, what was the contemplative life of the Virgin Mary? I mean, it's really beyond all telling. The secret of, it's, this belongs to the secret of her soul, really. But we can say some important things. What did, she, what did she gaze upon? Well, the first thing we need to say is that she gazed upon God and all of God's attributes, the, the, the love of God, the goodness of God, the truth of God, the power of God, the wisdom of God, the great peace of God, the providence of God, the way that God runs the world. Those sorts of um, topics, I guess you could say, that for us, we can struggle with those to kind of keep our mind on those things. You could say that for her, she was sort of naturally taken by those things or supernaturally taken by those things. It was customary or habitual for her to focus on those those mysteries of God, and to ponder them. St. John Eudes, when he discusses the knowledge and wisdom of Mary, he says this, quote, God was the single object of her gaze as well as her love. So St. John Eudes depicts the Blessed Virgin Mary as captivated by God, gazing upon him, just as someone who's in love gazes upon the Beloved, uh, the Blessed Virgin Mary just loved God with such a deep, vast charity that she was taken by Him and gazed upon Him and could taste and see the goodness of the Lord due to an exceedingly high degree of the gift of wisdom. What else did she gaze upon? The Word of God. The Jewish people of her day, it was very common for them to memorize the scriptures and to know it by heart. And, and there's every good reason to believe that the Blessed Virgin Mary knew the scriptures, knew them very well, was deeply imbued with them. And so when it came time to sing her Magnificat, I mean, there's so many allusions to 
things in the Old Testament in that one, in that one prayer that she offers up, that she is really filled and flooded with the Word of God. She reveals that her soul is imbued with the Word. This is what Benedict XVI says in his encyclical letter, Deus Caritas Est, about the Blessed Virgin Mary. Quote, The Magnificat is entirely woven from threads of Holy Scripture, threads drawn from the Word of God. Here we see how completely at home Mary is with the Word of God. With ease, she moves in and out of it. She speaks and thinks with the Word of God. The Word of God becomes her Word, and her Word issues from the Word of God. Here we see how her thoughts are attuned to the thoughts of God, how her will is one with the will of God. Since Mary is completely imbued with the Word of God, she is able to become the mother of the Word incarnate. That's how Benedict XVI depicts the Blessed Virgin Mary, or, or his commentary on Scripture's depiction of the Blessed Virgin Mary. She's a woman of the Word. She's contemplating the Word of God. She's keeping it before the gaze of the eyes of her heart. She's listening to the Word. She's pondering the Word. And in so doing, she knows it. She's, she's flooded with it. And when she goes to speak, when she goes to, to pray and to sing her praises to God, she, she spontaneously thinks and speaks in scriptural terms. But there's another thing that Our Lady has her gaze upon all the time, especially after uh, the birth of the Lord, but even before. She has her gaze on the face of Christ. She has her gaze on the face of Christ. Here's how John Paul II describes the contemplation of the Blessed Virgin Mary in Rosarium Virginis Mariae. He says, quote, The contemplation of Christ has an incomparable model in Mary. Notice the expression, incomparable model. She's above all the other saints. No one has ever devoted himself to the contemplation of the faith of, face of Christ as faithfully as Mary. The eyes of her heart already turned to him at the Annunciation, when she conceived him by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's an, an ordinary thing for mothers to do, is to ponder the child growing within them. But Mary does so with all of that fullness of grace surging through her heart and illuminating her intellect and will. In the months that followed, she began to sense his presence and to picture his features. When at last she gave birth to him in Bethlehem, her eyes were able to gaze tenderly on the face of her son as she wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. Let's notice the theme of gazing. That's the characteristic of contemplation and contemplative prayer, that simple gaze. He goes, on at, he goes on to say, Mary's gaze, ever filled with adoration and wonder, would never leave him. Sounds like St. John Eudes. The single object of her gaze was God. At times, John Paul II says, it would be a questioning look, as in the episode of the finding in the temple. 
it would also be a penetrating gaze, one capable of deeply understanding Jesus, even to the point of perceiving his hidden feelings and anticipating his decisions, as at Cana. At other times, it would be a look of sorrow, especially beneath the cross, where her vision would still be that of a mother giving birth. For Mary not only shared the passion and death of her son, she also received the new son given to her in the beloved disciple. On the morning of Easter, hers would be a gaze radiant with the joy of the resurrection. And finally, on the day of Pentecost, a gaze afire with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Do you see the recurrence of the theme, the, the gaze of Mary? She, she gazed upon Christ even while he was still in her womb. She gazed upon him when she held him in her arms. She gazed upon him in his, his adult life, in his ministry. She gazed upon him at the foot of the cross, at the resurrection. No one gazed upon the face of Jesus Christ as continuously and as faithfully as the Blessed Virgin Mary, or with as much love, or with as much understanding, or with as much knowledge and wisdom as she. And what's amazing is that she was free of all of those disordered movements that keep us away and keep distract us and draw us away. She had a kind of focus that was pure and, and, and steadfast and that way. And she, she call, and we are called to be like that, only we are on our way growing into it gradually and slowly with her help, as we'll say more later. What can we say about this passage? She kept all these things, pondering them in her heart. That passage just by itself is, r reveals a vast mystery of the contemplative life of Mary. Scripture scholars tell us to understand the term pondering there to mean interpretation. She's going over and over the sayings of the, of the saving events in her, in her memory, and she's doing so in light of divine providence. She's trying to understand what they mean. She's trying to read the signs, so to speak. So she would have remembered the words of the angel. She would have remembered Saint Joseph and, and the dreams he received, and she would have remembered the, the sayings of, of the Magi and the shepherds and, and Simeon and Anna. That's what, that's what it means when she says she re remembered all these things, the, the words, the sayings, pondering them in her heart. She was trying to understand them in light of the whole plan of God, divine providence, and all that she had come to understand of God's plan through her uh, understanding of Scripture. But she also would have pondered the events, too, and the things that went into uh, the saving events, all of it from the Annunciation to uh, the scene with the, in the manger, the shepherds, uh, the Magi, the flight into Egypt, uh, the finding in the temple. She kept all these things in her heart, and she would have kept the whole life of Christ, the public ministry of Christ, um, she would have kept the passion of, of Christ, of course, in her heart and his resurrection after he uh, ascends. She, her heart would have been a treasure chest of the events that saved the world. And 
she kept pondering these things, interpreting them. But as she pondered them, she was growing in charity, growing in charity because she was unopposed by any mortal or venial sins or disordered attachments, continually growing in grace and pondering them with more understanding, more knowledge, more wisdom, increasingly more as time went on, so that by the time Pentecost came and, and she continued uh, to live on this earth for some period of time, we don't know how long, she would have had a profound, amazing understanding and wisdom regarding the meaning and the significance of the saving events. And by that point, she would have understood her call to become the spiritual mother of all of the living because the Lord entrusted the beloved disciple to her at the foot of the cross and told her this was her vocation. Behold your mother, mother, woman, behold your son. So she would have seen the church growing with, as the apostles were preaching and more and more people were being baptized, she would have seen uh, more and more people kind of becoming her spiritual children. And she would have seen the life that she conceived in her womb years earlier, the very life of Christ. She would have seen that life multiplying in the souls of all those who are being baptized and coming into the church. And she would have seen the implications of her fiat and her yes, and would have seen the implications of the life of Christ unfolding in the lives of all these people. And she would have remembered that she's called to be their mother. They are her children. And she would have prayed and interceded for them to grow. But then once Our Lady was assumed and taken up into heaven, she uh, received even more. I mean, the ultimate contemplative grace, the beatific vision, the very light of glory, the sight of God. And in the light of glory in heaven, she sees absolutely every human person. She sees the vocation of each person. She sees the plan of God for each and every person. And she sees the plan of God for leading that person to the fulfillment of his or her vocation in the mystical body of Christ. She sees all the obstacles and trials that each person faces and is going to face on that journey. And she sees the divine plans for overcoming those trials and obstacles and how to turn them to the advantage of each soul. And she is devoted in this life she enjoys in the light. She's devoted to intercessory prayer for each person to become who God created the person to be. And we know that he's created you and me to become these contemplative souls, to become men and women who enter upon the grace of contemplative prayer. That's why God created us, to know God and to know him in this familiar way in the depths of our hearts. And the Blessed Virgin Mary knows what that means for each one of us personally, what that means for each one of us in particular. And she knows what God has created us to be and who we're called to become. And all that she was given, 
all the grace that she had was given to her ultimately so that she would be our spiritual mother and would pray us into becoming the person that God created us to be. She was born to pray, born to intercede for us and lead us into the heights of union, the heights of contemplative prayer. Sometimes people will object and say, you know, this picture of Mary that you've drawn is, is so high and it's so lofty, she's so ideal, I can't, I can't relate to her, it's too far away. We're not saved by psychological identification with, with anyone or anything. We're saved by grace through faith. That's what St. Paul says. Psychological identification is something that comes gradually over time, but what gets us there to begin with is faith. It's believing in the Blessed Virgin Mary, believing in the greatness and the magnitude of the grace God gave her, and believing in her spiritual maternity and how she prays for us to become who we're called to be, and she prays us day in and day out to into the heights of contemplative prayer. Uh, that's, that's what makes her so effective is the grace that she was given and her vocation and her spiritual maternity. And what you and I are, are called to do is to believe, first of all, in the greatness of her, her mystery, her prayer, her intercessory prayer, and her vocation to be our spiritual mother. So if you ask the question, how do we make our way, how do you and I make our way down this path of being purified and uh, growing by grace into the heights of union with God and into the life of contemplative prayer, here are five things we can say uh, about that process, practically speaking. Number one, faith in the mystery of the Blessed Virgin Mary and her spiritual maternity. Faith in that mystery obtains graces for us, graces to grow into contemplative prayer and into the heights of union and knowing God personally in the depths of our hearts. Number two, love of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Contemplative prayer is granted to people in proportion to their love of the Virgin. So the more we love the Blessed Virgin Mary, the more we tend to grow into contemplative prayer and become like her more and more. So fly to the Blessed Virgin Mary, show her your love in some way or another, and grace will come. It's, it's an amazing thing. That's really the third point. I mean, how much should we love her? All the way to the point of abandonment. Number three, abandonment of our lives, of all the protection that we need, our need for protection from spiritual enemies and, and things like that, and progress in the spiritual life. Abandon it all to the Blessed Virgin Mary. Take every concern, every worry about the spiritual life, about growing in the spiritual life, about where you may be or anything like that, and just place it in the hands of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Entrust it to her. Entrust yourself to her. Abandon all to her. She will see to everything exquisitely. This abandonment to the Blessed Virgin Mary is very powerful. Number four, the rosary. That's a very practical thing we can do, the saying the daily rosary. 
uh, the, the, each of the mysteries of the rosary is one of the memories of Mary. That's what John Paul II says in Rosarium Virginis Mariae. Every one of those mysteries is, is one of her memories. So when we join, when we say the prayer of the rosary, we're actually joining the Blessed Virgin Mary in her prayer. We are participating in the prayer life, in the contemplative life of the Blessed Virgin Mary. If you ask, how can I participate in her contemplative life, that's it, the rosary. John Paul II says that when we pick up the rosary and pray it, we are mystically transported to Mary's side. Lastly, number five, silence. The life of the Blessed Virgin Mary, her contemplative life was a life of silence. We are in great need of silence in our society, great need of entering silence and giving our minds and our hearts to, to, to focusing on God, His attributes, His Word, the face of Christ, the mysteries of Christ, and just staying there and living in that and remaining focused on Him. We need silence for that. Here's an excerpt from a homily by Pope Paul VI on the Feast of the Holy Family in 1964. It's in the breviary in the Office of Readings. Here's what Pope Paul VI says. I'll leave you with this quote. First, we learn from the silence of Nazareth. If only we could once again appreciate its great value. We need this wonderful state of mind. He's talking about silence, of course. Beset as we are by the cacophony of strident protests and conflicting claims so characteristic of these turbulent times. The silence of Nazareth should teach us how to meditate in peace and quiet, to reflect on the deeply spiritual, and to be open to the voice of God's inner wisdom and the counsel of his true teachers. Nazareth can teach us the value of study and preparation, of meditation, of a well-ordered personal spiritual life, and of silent prayer that is known only to God. Silent prayer that is known only to God. The Blessed Virgin Mary enjoyed that in abundance. You and I are called to that as well. Let us go to the Virgin, and she will obtain for us the grace to become contemplative souls.